Thank you for Treason by Godfrey Trees, read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 11. The House of the Yellow Gentleman It was good to have finished with our secrets, at any rate between Kit and me and our friend. When Kit heard the full story of my own dealings with Sir Philip, she was full of apologies for sending me into the danger she had avoided herself. But as I pointed out, the cases were different. I, as Juliet, looked utterly unlike myself, Kit in the same costume looked far more like Catherine Russell's than she ever did in her everyday disguise as a boy. "'The man's a brute,' she said viciously. "'He doesn't care twopence about me. Really, he treats me like a child. "'All he wants to do is lay hands on my estate. "'That's why he tried to fix up the formal public engagement before I was old enough to realise how serious it all was. "'He thought I wouldn't dare break it off, and as soon as I was fifteen or so he married me and take everything.' "'What was your guardian thinking of?' asked Shakespeare. "'She shrugged her shoulders. "'I don't know. "'Mr. Norman used to be so nice. "'He was Dad's best friend. "'But since he got in with Sir Philip,' "'she paused and actually shivered. "'Sir Philip's queer. "'He seems to have a power over people. "'He's the only man I ever met who really scares me.' "'Shakespeare thought for a moment, "'stroked his tiny pointed beard. "'I'll speak to the doorman,' he said at length. If Sir Philip comes to the theatre again, you'll get word at once and you won't have to go on. It's a confounded nuisance, but it's better than losing you entirely. What about Mr. Burbage? I'll speak to him, too. No, I won't tell him about you, my dear. That's a secret best locked into our bosoms. But I'll think of something. He chuckled. (laughs) They all make fun of me, you know, because I never invent my own stories for my plays. But I'll cook up some tale, never you fear. Luckily, our anxiety was soon removed, for two days later we heard that Sir Philip had left his lodgings for Cumberland. It was not likely that he would make the long journey again for many a day. I think that, as much as he liked London life, he wasn't too popular with the old queen, and did not move in the court circles. He wasn't a man who could bear to play second fiddle to anybody, so for the most part he preferred to busy himself in Cumberland, where he certainly had plenty to do what with stealing common lands, scheming to marry heiresses, and practising even more ambitious villainies, which at that time we didn't suspect. It was fine to know that he was safely started on the long northward road. We didn't realise how soon his shadow was to fall across our path again. Kit played Juliet at last. The town went mad over her, as we'd known they would. Even Burbage, as Romeo, was quite eclipsed, but he was too great a player to be jealous. That night he and Shakespeare took us out to a supper at a tavern, and we ate it with a, till it was a wonder our skins didn't split like sausages. Burbage got sad after a few glasses of wine and looked mournfully at Kit. It was great acting, he admitted, but what future has the boy got? What future? Shakespeare echoed. The manager sighed. All very nice, pretty as a girl. The best boy we've ever had for the part. But you know how they all go. He turned to Kit and addressed her solemnly. In another year or two, young man, you'll be sprouting black hairs on your lip and chin, and your voice will crack. Of course, you may get over it and blossom forth in the male parts, but somehow they never do. They never do. I can see you as Juliet, but never as Romeo. Shakespeare was chuckling. Don't meet your troubles halfway, Dick. I'll bet you a pound that Kit has no beard ten years from now. "'No, thanks.' Burbage poured himself more wine. "'The theatrical business is the only gamble I touch, "'and it's quite enough, believe me.' "'But who'd give it up?' said Desmond challengingly. "'I would. 
It was Shakespeare. We all looked at him. You? cried Burbage. But, man, you're going to be great. You're writing as well as Marlowe now. You may even write better some day. You wouldn't give it all up. I think so, when I'm ready. Shakespeare looked into the crackling fire, and as he went on quietly talking, I knew he was looking straight through the flames and the black chimney into Warwickshire. That house I bought last year at Stratford? New place? Yes, that's a home for me, not those pokey rooms in Bishopsgate. I want a garden. I want a river. The Thames isn't a river here, it's a street, and a sewer, and a cemetery. He turned suddenly to me. What do you say, Peter? Where do you mean to end your days? London or Cumberland? I smiled at him, and we seemed like two countrymen meeting in a crowded city. I thought of Blencathra under a blue satin sky, and Skitdar Forest when the heather was new, and Dur went water, mirroring all the fells, and the young larches standing out against the hillside, sugared with snow, and a thousand such things, and I said huskily, Cumberland, please, God. Me too, said Kit, and I felt very glad that she agreed with me. Not that London wasn't a grand place just then, with Christmas coming and the Lord Chamberlain's men commanded to act before the Queen at court on the twelfth night. That was the climax of nearly a fortnight's hard work and festivities. When we weren't acting to crowned, "'Good-natured audiences, we are enjoying ourselves at Shakespeare's place in Bishopsgate, "'or the Desmond's rooms at the Flower de Luis, "'or skating on the ponds out Kenswickton Way. "'But I shall never forget Twelfth Night, at Whitehall Palace, "'with our stage set in the Great Hall. "'It was all hung with holly and ivy and bays and rosemary, "'mistletoe and a thousand candles winking on the ladies' jewels, "'and the Queen sitting just in front of us, "'her silken skirts curved out away from her, like a cascade of silver, and her great ruffle, framing her face like a halo. We did Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, which he had written to please her, because she wanted to see the fat man, Falstaff, in love. It was Anne Page, and I was mistress quickly. Seven times I made the Queen herself laugh right out. We got ten pounds for the whole show, which was good, but nothing extraordinary. The Queen was very economical, and felt that we ought really to be satisfied with the advertisement we got through being her favourite actors. It didn't make any difference to us apprentices, anyhow. What pleased us was the marvellous food they gave us, dishes left over from the banquet, roast peacock and swan, buttered oranges, tansy and snow, which was mostly cream, sugar and the white of egg, and slipped down very pleasantly when we were stuffed with the heavier things. It's true I was rather ill during the night afterwards, and Kit called me a fat Christmas hog, but it was worth it. Winter passed and spring followed. Soon we should move to our summer quarters, the New Globe Theatre. Shakespeare was writing a play about King Henry V, which was likely to be popular because war was in the news that year, owing to the Lord's Exert's campaign in Ireland. Kit had a funny pot, queer I mean, as a French Princess Catherine, for she had to talk French, which she did easily because she had a good tutor at home. I was mistress quickly again, for she came into the new play too, and I'd made rather a specialty of her character. We hoped that with any luck we'd get a command to play before the Queen. I remember we got our copies of the script just after May Day, and a strange thing happened, which set a number of other strange things into motion. 
Perhaps I ought to explain that by this time we were quite well-known London characters. Anyhow, in the two theatre districts of Fursbury and Southwark, and of course among the quarters and the fashionable people, who came regularly to see our company, that's why I thought nothing amiss when the yellow gentleman started to speak to me outside St. Paul's. It was quite usual for perfect strangers to greet us and say something complimentary. I didn't know his name, but I call him the yellow gentleman because of his yellow doublet, all slashed very fashionably, in some material that must have cost a fortune. He looked a very fine person, and I was fool enough to feel quite flattered to be seen talking with him. Mistress Quickly, I think, he said with a smile, and Juliet's nurse, and Lucida, and he rattled off half a dozen pots I played regularly. And what are you working on now? I told him about Henry V. There was no secret about it, and the probable date of the first performance. He looked disappointed. What a pity! I shall miss it. I shall be in Italy by then. Is this the script? I passed it to him. He scanned the opening lines. Oh, for the muse of fire, that would ascend the brightest heavens of invention! He read softly under his breath. Magnificent stuff! he exclaimed. How like my luck to miss it! He read on silently, fairly eating the play. At last, he lifted his eyes with a sigh. I suppose you can't spare this copy just for this evening? If I can't see it, I should like to read it. It was difficult to refuse. Anyhow, he gave me a shilling. If shillings were as scarce in your life as they were in mine, you'd have done the same thing. He'd only just left me when Kit came along. We'd arranged to meet in St. Paul's churchyard, and of course she was late. That was the one girl's trick of hers that she had never gotten rid of. Idiot! Country bumpkin! she said pleasantly when she heard. What was his name? Where does he live or lodge? I didn't... I, I didn't ask. Oh, Peter! You do need me to look after you! That's quite all right, I protested. He's going to meet me here in the very same spot tomorrow morning at nine. He never will, she said decidedly. Nor did he. Kit came with me to keep the appointment, and we waited till the clock struck ten, but the yellow gentleman did not appear. He's a pirate, said Kit, a playhouse pirate. He'll sell that play to someone else, and they'll rush it into production and do it before we do. I began to have a terrible conviction that she was right. I wondered how on earth I should confess to Shakespeare that I had sold his new play for a shilling. Cheer up, said Kit. I may be wrong. He may have overslept or something. Anyways, he knows who you are, and he'll be honest. If he's honest, he'll return the script to you at the theatre. Of course he didn't. And we both knew he wouldn't. There seemed nothing left to do but to go to Shakespeare and confess. If he thought the yellow gentleman was a pirate, he could hurry on our production and bring it out before the others. That would be a great pity, though, because it was now practically fixed that the first performance should be given to the Queen, and that date couldn't be altered because the court was on one of its periodical progresses, or tours, round the country. We were walking down Fleet Street, Kit and I, thrashing out the matter for the sixteenth time, and I had just said I'd go straight to Bishopsgate and tell him when, wonder of wonders, I saw the yellow gentleman. There he is, I cried, and grabbed her arm. Where? Who? Oh, I see. He was riding the other way out of the city. I called, but the rumble of carts and the shout of the cry-keepers was too loud. He rode on without turning his head. After him, I gasped, when we began to trot, treading our way through the passers-by and the bales of merchandise on the pavement. Mounted though he was, he could be overtaken if we hurried. Until he was through the temple bar and well along the strand, he couldn't canter. 
Of course, if you reached the open country, we'd never catch him. There was a jam of traffic at the temple bar. He was to rein in his horse and wait behind a farm cart until a squadron of soldiers had ridden through the narrow gate. I seized my chance, slipped between the carriage and a man with a donkey, and reached his side. Excuse me, sir. He looked down from his saddle. For a moment his eyes flashed recognition instinctively. Then he remembered, and pretended not to remember. What do you want, my lad? I lent you a copy of a play. You what? What's the matter? Are you crazy? You've mistaken me for someone else. Oh, no, I've not, I said firmly, and grasped his bridle. At least now I knew I was dealing with a thief, not a forgetful gentleman, and I could behave straightforwardly. He cut me across the shoulders with his whip, but I still held his bridle, and the crowd began to gather. One of the gatekeepers bustled forward, swearing because the traffic block was being worsened. I stuck to my story. It was gospel truth, and I couldn't understand why everyone couldn't see it was gospel truth. Looking back now, I can see it with their eyes. A gentleman on a horse and an actor boy, a vagabond, shouting absurd accusations about stolen plays. How could you steal a play anyhow? Or who would want to? And the boy didn't even know the name of the gentleman he was accusing. Yes, I can understand better now why they dragged me away, sent me flying into the gutter, and yelled after me that I was lucky not to be handed over to the law for thrashing. When I picked myself up, red with shame and fury, the yellow gentleman had gone. So, to my surprise, had Kit. She hadn't said a word to back up my story. She hadn't even stayed to console me. I felt deserted and resentful. I did her an injustice. She came walking through the gate, glared at the keeper, stuck out her tongue at the passers-by who had lingered and were still grinning, and then led me away without a word. From the way she squeezed my arm, I knew there was still hope. I found out where he lives, she said as soon as we had gone a safe distance. I wondered where on earth you'd gotten to. Well, I knew I couldn't help you, she said sensibly. If bullet-the-gate methods were going to do the trick, I knew you'd manage without me. But I had a fancy things would turn out as they did, so I kept in the background. "'and he didn't know I was with you. "'He looked back once to make sure you weren't following him, "'but he didn't give me a glance. "'Then he rode through a gate, "'and I could see from the way the servant took his horse "'that he's staying there, even if it isn't his own home. "'Where was it? Along the Strand? "'Just off, right down of the river bank. "'One of those houses that rise straight out of the water, I should think. "'Not a very big one. "'Oh, it looks small, because it's wedged between two huge places. (laughs) "'Well, thank you.' It was pretty smart of you, I said doubtfully, but I don't see what the next move is. Kit admitted that she didn't either. Still, she argued, it's something to know where the man's to be found, and to know that the play is somewhere inside that house. And I'm going to get it back, I vowed, though for the life of me I couldn't see how. There was no sense in going to knock on the front door and ask for it. If it had been money or jewels, I suppose we could, with Shakespeare's help, have gotten a magistrate's warrant to search the house. But would any justice of the peace help us to look for a lost play? Yet the more I thought the matter over, the more important it seemed that we should regain the script. The yellow gentleman had behaved so suspiciously. I began to wonder if I could get into that house without anyone's warrant or permission, and recover that what was, after all, only my own property. We walked back, looking as if butter wouldn't melt in our mouths, and I peeped into the house, as Kit indicated. It was a three-story building, overshadowed by great mansions on either side. There was a square double gate leading to the courtyard, and this, with its great iron bars and nails, 
would have needed a battering ram to force it if it was locked against you. There was only one small window on the ground floor, and it was protected by bars. Most of the strand houses were well defended like this, for they stood outside the city walls, and the protection of the watch. When I say that there are three hundred criminals hanged in London every year, you'll see the need for bolts and bars. You'll never get in there, said Kit. I was inclined to agree. I raised my eyes to the upper windows. Each story projected a couple of feet beyond the one below, so that the house hung over the narrow lane like a crag. If it had been a crag, I might have managed something. As it was, a smooth cream plaster offered no holds. Perhaps it's a back way, I suggested. I doubt it. These houses all go straight up from the river. Of course, there might be a water gate if we had a boat. We turned down an alley, hoping it might bring us to another lane at the back of the house, but as we had feared, it was a dead end. It brought us to a flight of seaweedy stairs, leading straight down into the grey Thames. Standing on these steps, we could look a hundred yards along the curved river and see the house of the yellow gentleman, unmistakable between its taller neighbours, rising sheer from the water. As we watched, an upper casement was flung back, and the head and shoulders of a servant appeared with a bucket, the contents of which he sent slopping down. No bars on that window, I said. But no landing stage or steps or anything, said Kit. Nearly all the big homes had their entrances from the river as well, because it was the pleasantest highway between Westminster and the far side of London. I looked at the house with narrowed eyes. The noonday sun was shining full on it, and every irregularity and crevice stood out in black shadow. There was a lot of timber on the side. I could get up to that window, I said at last. I'd need a boat, and let me see, say half a dozen of daggers. Half a dozen what? Daggers. I could stick them into the beams where there's no other hold. I think we could bow half a dozen, don't you? Kit began to look alarmed now. My plan was really taking shape, but I soon assured her, and she promised to do her share. We timed the burglary for twilight, for there would be less risk of being noticed by people passing up and down the river, but sufficient light remaining for me to see what I had to do inside the house. There was no sense in going at midnight if it meant candles. Also, the tide would be well up about eight o'clock, shortening my climb. We booked the boat for seven. The waterman was a little dubious about our youth, but I soon convinced him that I knew well how to manage the craft. We told him we were going to row up past Westminster Abbey and drift back by moonlight, with the current and the ebb tide. He wished us a pleasant trip. We collected the daggers at the theatre, as well as a length of rope which I thought would be handy for the return trip down the face of the house. As soon as the performance was over, we made for the strand. Kit carried a bundle of girls' clothes, borrowed from the company's wardrobe, and changed into them in the field near Lincoln's Inn. Her job was to watch the landward side of the house. In girls' clothes, she would arouse less suspicious, and if the yellow gentleman looked out, he would not be reminded of the boy he had seen that morning. Finally, as a girl, she would be better fitted to play the part required of her, which was, well, you'll be thinking, no doubt, that the most difficult part of our problem was still unsolved. What would the yellow gentleman and the other inmates of the house be doing all the time I ransacked their belongings? Kit volunteered to look after them. I didn't like dragging her into danger, but she went haughty at once. There's no danger for me. I'm an actor. I could do this on my head, Pete. She added accusingly, "'You're doing what you swore you wouldn't do, treating me as a girl.' "'Sorry,' I said. "'All right, then. "'Remember, when the clock stops striking eight, that's the moment for you to act.' "'Good luck,' she said, "'and do be careful.' I went away to get the boat. The sun was setting behind Westminster Abbey, and the incoming tides stung my nostrils with the tang of the sea. 
I took the oars and swung the boat out on the brimming surface of the river.